I said it before and I'll say it again. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f What the f gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, it's going to be a quick introduction today because I'm fighting a bit of a cold and my voice is slowly going out. So basically, do me a favor. Go in, write a review on the podcast if you like it in iTunes or your favorite podcast directory and sign up for the newsletter and get six free lessons of the ASA 101 course. And that's the advertisement and the introduction for today. Today I'm going to be interviewing Kamau. Kamau has appeared on a lot of other podcasts. I've listened to him being interviewed by a couple other podcasters. I think he was interviewed by Jeffrey Wedding at Shooting the Breeze podcast. I know he's a friend of Jeffrey and they meet together once in a while. And Kamau reached out to me and said, hey, Franz, I'm building a boat. Why don't you get me on and we will talk. So that's going to be my guest today. And let's get right to that interview. All right, I'm on the, I'm on the line and, and uh, this is unusual. I'm being actually recorded by Kamau. This is Kamau. Give me your last name, Kamau, because I butchered it before. It's Ian.Sierro. I said Ian.Sierro and you just laughed at me and that's exactly what you just said to me. No, you're saying C. Okay. I'm saying T, as in T. I am Oh, I am Okay, I can do that. I can do that. All right. So Kamau's in Baltimore, Maryland. And a lot of my listeners like the idea of uh, do-it-yourself. And you're the ultimate do-it-yourselfer. You're way beyond me in this. And you're building a big boat in your backyard. And you also have a YouTube video, so tell us about your YouTube video. I went and took a look at your most recent video yesterday where you've, you've been working on the Kielsen. So tell us where you're at. Just tell me about yourself. That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> well, uh, I'm a native to, to Maryland, native to Baltimore, and um, have been a boating enthusiast you know, all of my life. Always loved boats. Um, I am a... Uh, Builder, designer, uh, sort of an engineer by by trade and by passion, and um, actually got into the field I'm in when I was a, a youngster. I would um, just draw boats, and I would draw spaceships and um, military vessels. That was one of my early passions, drawing those things and building models. Um, you know, the little glue models for kids. This is back in the 70s. And my mother would get Better Homes and Gardens, you know, the magazine, and I would see blueprints in those books, and I would draw blueprints. And so I had a, a, a natural inclination for technical design and, and drawing and drafting and all that. So I went to a high school. Um, it's We have... Um, high schools in Baltimore that you have your local school you can go to, or you have a school that you have to apply to get into. Um, uh, I think they're called magnet schools nowadays, but we used to call them citywide schools uh, back in my day. And so I applied to a, uh, a citywide school that had drafting and architectural mechanical drawing as one of their um, majors. And I got accepted. And so in high school, I took drafting, architectural, mechanical uh, drawing as a trade. And I wanted to be an engineer initially. And so I was pretty good at it. I was the best in my class for 
pretty much the entire three-year program. And so I had opportunity to work for an architectural firm um, in my junior year of high school as a volunteer and um, thought it was interesting, but architecture was a lot of dark rooms and a lot of talking about colors and textures. <laughs> it was a bit more uh, uh, touchy-feely than I thought. And so then my senior year, I got a chance to work for an engineering company and I got paid. And um, that was pretty pretty, pretty interesting. We would go out and, in the field and do measurements and surveys and all that kind of stuff. So I said, okay, I think I want to be an engineer. So I went to university to be an engineer and um, ended up getting a summer job working for an engineering company in between my sophomore and freshman years. And as an engineer, I had to inspect construction on a construction site. And I just love that. And so I changed my major to construction management and kind of got away from the design component uh, and just more into building. But that passion stayed inside of me. Fast forward 20 some odd years uh, to 2013. And I had taken a trip to go sailing. It was my first sailing trip. Um, and I just loved it. It was, it was moving. It was moving. It was spiritual. It was just this awesome thing. <laughs> it was a perfectly hot summer day here in the Chesapeake and um, not a lot of wind, but it was probably blowing eight to 10 knots. But in the small little boat we were on, it was just wonderful. So peaceful. And I just fell in love with sailing. And so <laughs> after that day, I started to say, well, how can I get a sailboat? You know, what can I do to, you know, pursue this newfound passion, this newfound interest and so of course i started to look, to look at boat school to different marinas and visit boats and get on boats and yeah you know, i noticed there was a constant that was i did not fit on the average boat i am six foot seven inches tall and you know 300 and let's say i'm north of 350 <laughs> you know built like a uh, a tackle um, for football team, NFL football team. And so I, I didn't kind of fit on these boats. And so I started to realize that if I wanted a, a sailboat and to do what I wanted to do, which is cruise, I needed to, you know, get a oyster or some huge expensive boat that would be half a million or a million dollars. And I just, I just couldn't see that, um, well, at first, it didn't fit in my budget. I don't have the money to do that. I've got young children, five-year-old, up to a college, uh, freshman in college. So I couldn't afford that. So I said, well, let me look at older boats. And I started to think about um, potentially buying an older boat and refitting it. And once I, once I started researching that, you know, I started researching how they build boats. <laughs> and I said, well, hey, I can do that. <laughs> I just built a $70 million hospital. Hold on. I got to turn this off. I got another call coming in from Lewis in Portugal. I'll, uh... Okay. There we go. Turn that off. Let me, let me send him a quick email right now and say, Lewis, I can't talk right now. That's uh, actually Lewis in Portugal. If you've listened to my re recent podcast, he did one on fiberglassing. So he's coming back to do the second part on that. But, uh, We'll get to he'll he'll get my message, and we will continue. And I'm not even going to bother editing this. So okay, good enough. Sorry about that, Kamau. So you're you're looking at you're, you're getting on boats. Let's continue on where you're at. I'm sorry for the interruption there. So I'm getting on boats, and I'm just seeing this is just not working. And 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 in doing that research, I start to find videos on people that were building boats. And I said, well, I, you know, I think I could do that. And so. I took my, my drafting, designing, and engineering skills and put them to task. So I started to look at lots of uh, plans for boats and started to bother, uh, uh, borrow different components of the boats that I liked. I did a, a simple Google search of the best blue water boats and found an article written by, um, uh, what's his name? The guy that built the, uh, or designed the, um, Island packets. What's his name? 
Uh, I can't remember. Yeah, the, the famous designer. Okay, <laughs> the famous designer. That's good. Right. One. He's yeah. in Sale Magazine. He's got all his designs in Sale Magazine. He does okay. a review of boats. Um, and at any rate, his name leaves me now. But I, um, and he mentioned certain boats that were good blue water boats. So I began to study the different aspects of hull shapes and, you know, having a boat that's for the purpose you wanted. And again, I wanted a boat that I could potentially live aboard and cruise. So, uh, you know, borrowed some components and did my own drafting. And a couple months later, I went to the Annapolis Boat Show, the 2013 Annapolis Boat Show. And I took these blueprints with me, these initial, uh, let's say, four or five pages worth of blueprints. I took them with me and I shared them with um, some old salts. I remember talking to Don Street. I remember talking to um, some other po- folks who had done free lectures at the boat show. And I received their feedback in terms of what they would change or do to the boat. And it was very minimal. I, I remember Don Street saying, add more cow vents. You know, you need more, you need more, um, more fresh air down, down below. And uh, I remember them asking me, well, who's your naval architect? And I said, well, I designed this. And, you know, the feedback I got was very encouraging. So it told me that, you know, I was headed down the right path. So I, I decided to invest in this and I hired a naval architect in Annapolis uh, to assist me with the design. And um, we did a couple iterations to further develop the boat. And what I mean by hire, I did all the design and I would hire the naval architect to review my designs because that's what we do in construction. You can come up with something and you have an engineer review. It's much cheaper than having them to do the actual drafting and to figure out all the calculations and you have them uh, do a review of your design. So I, I did that and um, we got to a certain degree or to a certain point. And, um, he's a real old school guy and he wanted me to, kept, <laughs> to keep making the boat heavier and heavier. And I didn't really want a heavy displacement boat. I wanted a boat that was relatively uh, light to moderate displacement um, for speed, but I, I realized that I, I did want comfort of a, uh, of a stable boat. So, you know, I uh, initially talked to Andy Shell, and he recommended Eric Dijon, who is out of, I forget where Eric's out of, it's Nova Scotia somewhere, somewhere cold. <laughs> and uh, he's a professional naval architect, and we consulted online. I sent him my design uh, after further iterations, and he gave me his feedback. He did some stability calculations. And all of this is documented on my YouTube channel, by the way, the actual interview and conversation with Eric Dijon. And he talked me into doing something that I thought was crazy, which is to make the boat longer. Um, he's a, uh, a fan of the fast cruiser technology, which is basically a lot of waterline, keep the boat kind of slim, and, um, you know, again, moderate displacement. And I saw I made the boat longer. So initially the boat started off, I think, at 40. grew it's grown to now 54 feet long uh it's it has it still has a substantial beam it's got a 16 foot beam but its displacement is only 36,000 pounds uh 32,000 pound light ship um and uh so we continued that design and i started building it last year i started to lay the keel uh in april actually probably May or June of 2015. Uh, last year, it took me all of last year to, to build the actual kill sun. And then this year, we started building frames. And so I uh, am attaching frames currently. Um, but all the frames are already built. The process now is to assemble the frames and to actually connect them uh, to the Kielsen. And so a good portion of my time this year was also spent building a shelter or uh, modifying my shelter to be able to do this um, sort of out of weather. And that's currently where I am. I've got, I'm thinking, another two to three years of building here at my home. And then I'll move to a boat yard and uh, complete the build there. I can't uh, build the boat in total here because it would be too tall to uh, easily carry on the highway um, uh, to the boat yard. So I have to do some of that when I get actually at the yard. Uh, the, I, I have built the keel, but it's not attached. And I have to attach that at the yard. And I will not be able to build a pilot house here. Um, a 
again, because it would be too tall to uh, carry on the roadway. And so that's a, uh, <laughs> a history of my project and uh, where I currently am. Let me ask you a question. How are you going to, and now are you going to move the, the, the keelson with the, the ribs? Is that how you think you're going to move it? Well, the hull will be complete. Yes, the hull will be complete when I move it. it okay, will be so it'll be planked as a, well then. Yeah, it's a plywood on frame boat. So um, sort of a traditional product, but not. I mean, it's got wood frames, Douglas fir, but the actual hull or skin of the hull will be um, a Maranti um, British Standard 1088 um, 18 mil plywood or three-quarter inch plywood. That'll have two layers of fiberglass <clears throat> on the outside. So is it going to have a hard shine then? Yes, it has hard shines. It's got a double shine. It's got a lower shine, which represents the waterline. And then uh, it has an upper shine, which represents just an, an, an aesthetic flare uh, to the side of the boat to give it a little more appeal. All right. So where did you learn your boat building skills? Uh <laughs> My, well, my, book, my, my carpentry skills came from just my own um, passion. I, I build stuff for fun. And a lot of things I build is out of, uh, come from necessity. Because I'm a, a bigger person <laughs> and I've never liked um, an example. When I bought my first house back in, uh, let's see, 1993. 94. I was 23 years old, and I couldn't find a dining room table that I liked because I have long legs. And so, <clears throat> you know, I'd go to the furniture stores and sit under these tables, and all the dining room tables had a rail on it, and they would hit my hit my knees. And I'm like, I'm not going to spend all this money on this furniture. And I can't even fit under it comfortably. <clears throat> and so, fortunately, um, one of those summers when I was in university, I worked for a cabinet maker, and I learned to do joinery and cabinet work and so I built a dining room table um, back then when I couldn't find one that I liked and so building cabinetry building furniture that's something that I've always enjoyed um, my my uh, passion is construction I'm a construction manager <clears throat> and I've um, you know owned a construction company uh, for nine years where we actually did what's called at-risk work where we actually had laborers and carpenters and, and, and the trades people actually working for me and so i'm a builder um by trade my business is a little different now i don't have any employees i'm basically a management consultant and i work for companies managing projects uh, as a senior level manager uh, as a construction manager but these this, the basic skills of building is what i love i mean i wish i could make the salary i make you know using my hands and being in the field um, but, you know, as a victim of your own success, you're, you're more uh, at a desk or in meetings than you are, uh, you know, in the field. But uh, it's it's my own passion and my own skill. I didn't really learn from anyone. It's just my own investigation and um, uh, seeking and trial and error. I mean, uh, so I'm imagining this dining room table of yours. Kamau, and I'm imagining you're at one end of the table, and, and you have a table that's a two-step table. One that one side of the table is high to accommodate <laughs> you, and the other side of the table is low enough to accommodate your family. No, it, it just didn't have that rail. It just didn't have that silly little rail, uh, which is a, a structural component. I mean, you could not stand on my table and tap dance. <laughs> um, but it's 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 basically like a um, a thick slab that had four legs that just the legs weren't connected, so I had to really re reinforce the connection of the legs to the actual platform. Okay, all right, all right. So let me relatively ask, simple method. Do you ever go out to eat at Greek restaurants in in Baltimore? Just out of curiosity. Uh, I've I've been to a, a Greek restaurant or two. Yeah. All right, so. I'll tell you a quick story, and, and then I want you to test my thesis So next time you go to a Greek restaurant. So I was in um, Carpathos. I'd sailed down to Carpathos, and some friends and I rented a car and drove up to this. I think the name of the village was Olympos, but I'm not positive. This tiny little village with traditional dressed people. Um, 
you know, selling knickknacks, and it was a, it was a pedestrian. You could not drive a car in there. You had to 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 park your car and walk up, and it was really a hilltop community. It was it's gorgeous, and the site, you know, the view was gorgeous, and and it's um, you know, it's everybody was dressed in traditional dress, and I'm we're walking up this little path, and there's people trying to sell us knickknacks and knickknacks, and they're speaking pigeon English and. And suddenly this lady's um, cell phone goes off, and she goes over and looks at it and then starts speaking perfectly for perfectly good English into the cell phone. And she's talking to her friend in Baltimore, Maryland. And it turns out <laughs> this whole community goes and works at the Greek restaurants in and around Baltimore uh, one or two years and then comes back to this Greek community. So, the, so Baltimore wow. restaurants are supporting this tiny little Greek community. So next time you go to a Greek restaurant there. Ask them if they're from Carpathos, if they're from the island of Carpathos. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah, there are a lot of um, Greek restaurants, even if they're not Greek-themed um, here in Baltimore. Um, we have these diners, these diners that are um, based on 1950s-style diners. We have them all over the place. And a good portion of them are owned um, by Greek Greek people, and they have, you know, a standard fair American part of the menu, but then they have uh, a Greek portion to the menu too. So that, that's interesting, as well as the traditional um, uh, mom and pop restaurants here in town as, as well. Yeah, well, test out, test that out for me. Let me know what you find because I'm. I thought that was pretty interesting. That this whole community, everybody, somebody from every family's working at a restaurant in Baltimore, Maryland, at some point in time. So. <laughs> What's the name of what's the name of the village again? It's a, the name of the the island is Carpathos, okay, and okay. Uh, and the I think the name of the village was Olympos, but I'm not positive on the name Olympus. of the village. I'd have to look. It's this tiny little village at the top of the mountain on the northern the northern end of the island. I could go look it up, but I think it was Olympos, <laughs> but I'm not positive. So, <clears throat> getting back to the boat, are you going? So the the what are the ribs going to be made of? The ribs are made out of Douglas fir. Okay, and the Kielsen was Douglas fir. I read a book a long time ago, and they said the one wood you could make an entire boat out of would would be Douglas fir. You could do everything, the mass, everything out of Douglas fir. So, is the planking going to be out of Douglas fir as well? No, it's it's not planking. It's um, oh, excuse me, I, that's right. It's plywood. I'm sorry. Right, yeah, right, right, right. So, the plywood plywood is a little um, exotic. <laughs> I think. The Maranti is really just, um, it comes from an African sapile tree, I believe. And um, I, I made a, another boat. I made a dinghy a couple of years ago, a little sailing dinghy. And I tried out the Okume and Maranti. And I tell you, um, the Okume may be a slightly bit prettier, but I, I like both woods are great. So I, the Maranti is much cheaper. Well, not much cheaper. It's about 15% cheaper. Uh, one's like $150 a sheet, and the other's like $120 a sheet. So, uh, But, yeah, I'll use the Maranti. So how thick is the plywood going to be that you put on? Is it two layers or one layer? How are you going to do that? The hull is one layer of 18 mil. So the scaling rules I use, I forget what they are. It's ocean racing something 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 <laughs> and so uh the whole thickness is well within uh what they need to be i think i could have gotten away with plywood as thin as uh three-eighths of an inch so it's twice as thick as it needed to be uh based on the spacing of my frames my frames are 19 inches apart and so uh, i think according to that spacing i could have uh well, it works back and forth. The thickness of your hull determines the spacing of your internal frames. So the thickness of my hull, I think my frames could have been as much as 50 inches apart, but they're not. They're 19 inches apart. And uh, they're actually much thicker than they, they were required to be also. <clears throat> the uh, the bottom the bottom frame uh, is 5 inches, and the frames that rise up to the shear are 3 inches. Uh, and we also have a uh, a system of, system of grid or stringers 
that are also every 24 inches apart. So we've got a, a, a pretty, what's going to be, I think, a pretty stiff hull because that's what's important. You don't want things to flex and twist. And the plywood itself actually aids in the twisting of the boat because, of course, the plywood is a composite itself with grains going in different directions. So it should have a pretty strong. So you're going to have the stringers, the sheeting, and the ribs and the keels and all attached when you move it to the boat yard then? Right. My goal is to have the interior of the boat pretty much done, to have all the systems in place, do all the plumbing, the electrical, do all that stuff uh, locally. And because I, I, I'm building in my yard, so um, yeah, the more you can do in the yard, the less expensive the yard bill is going to be. So, the uh, the right. boat yard bill is going to be. So, are you going to turn now? Right now, it's building. It's being built upside down. So, you're going to have to turn that hull at some point in time in your yard. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, I've thought about different ways of doing that. Hiring a crane to come in, which is uh, an easy way to do it. Um, but I think what I'm going to do is to just build a gantry. Um, it was, I, was at, I was at work. Um, one of the latest projects I was on was a school project. And um, the masons were uh, installing the, the masonry, of course. And, you know, I just noticed they set those big pallets of brick and, and stone or brick and um, block right on the scaffolding. I thought to myself, I said, damn, <laughs> excuse my French, that's a lot of weight. So I asked the guy, I said, what's, what's, what, what can you put, what weight can you put on a scaffold? He's like, oh, you can easily do, I think it's 3,500 pounds without having it re-engineered. Like just basic tube scaffolding can carry 3,500 pounds. So I said, hmm, my, the, the boat will be about 5,000 pounds when I'm finished the framing and the plywood. I said, so using that logic, I could just do two sections of scaffold, put a beam across, and I could technically lift 7,000 pounds without having to have it re-engineered re or stiffened. And so there you go. So regular old tube scaffolding that you can rent from any um, commercial construction supply place can carry 3,500 pounds. And they actually rent beams that you can use to carry loads because this is not something that is brand, is new. As a matter of fact, one of my jobs last year was working, or two years ago, I, I built a casino near Washington, D.C. Uh, it was an MGM casino, and we did a mock-up and in the mock-up we had different iterations of what the ceiling would be, and we had a scaffolding company come and put us uh, a rig that could carry the different fixtures and finishes of the ceiling, and it just brought to mind that that's all I need to do really is just buy scaffolding or rent some scaffolding, have them put me some beams across, and then I'll use hoist to hoist it, and I'll use regular old human beings to, to begin to move it along so that we can just lift it slightly, turn it 60 degrees, lower it, lift it, turn it, and you know in an afternoon we should be able to turn it over pretty easily. Because actually I'm not putting the plywood on the sides. I'm doing the bottom. Uh, the reason why I'm not putting the plywood on the sides is because of the, the actual platform that's there. Um, if, if I don't want to have to lift this thing too high. So if the frame of the boat is turning, I don't want it to uh, potentially hit any of these uh, posts that hold up the shelter. So I'm leaving the sides off until I get the boat upright and then I'll, I'll put the uh, plywood. So they might the go. Be, they might go between like the scaffolding if you need right. to. Is what you're thinking then? Well, if you look at the video, it's not scaffolding. I have these poles that actually hold up the uh, awning or the tarp, and so the boat might not quite turn inside of its own circle. So, if need be, if if I had the full hull structure there, it probably would hit one of these posts and. I could take them down and put them back up, but I don't want to do that. <laughs> so I'll just leave off the uh, the side of the hull until I get it turned upright, and then I'll put that on. All right. So I was watching your video. You have a, a helper working with you. Who's that? Uh, I, 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 um, I, <laughs> I've got a couple people helping me. Um, the guy that you see most recently um, uh, is a guy named uh, Ray. And Ray is a carpenter. He works for a 
framing company. He does framing of houses and commercial buildings um, during the week, and he works for me uh, during the weekend. And um, it's a you know cash basis. I, I pay him twenty dollars an hour. He's a really good carpenter. Uh, you'll see some other people show up from now, now and again. I have some friends that come to help out. Um, last year, on last year's videos, the guy helping me, I can't remember his name, but he was just a local like laborer type that I met, and he would work with me on occasion as well. So I like to find guys that have some skills and kind of stick with them. Hopefully, um, Ray is really good. I mean, he is really, really good. I almost want to help him get a business so we work together and, on a professional level to some degree. So these are people that you're paying as a general rule, then. So yeah, you can really get get some good work out of them. Then. Yep. 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 And they, and the thing about a project like this is it's self financed. So you know when the bank account looks nice, I can go ahead and do more work. And you know when better times there, I just go outside and work by myself. And uh, you know that's that's the way this is. People say, well, when will it get done? We'll get done when my bank account will allow. <laughs> you, you know, that's pretty much the way I built my boat, too, is when I had money, I did stuff. And when I didn't, I did stuff that took a lot of work and not money. I mean, there's always work to do. There's a lot, a lot of work to do without that doesn't require a lot of money. So that's how I did it. I pretty much financed it. And mine took me five years to build. How long have you been working on yours so far? Uh, actual building, um, I call it season. So the first season was from... Uh, like I said, May, June to September of last year. And unfortunately, I lost my mother mm. um, last year. So things kind of stopped. She she passed away on October 1st of 2015. And so, of course, I lost all momentum and um, stopped really working on it from September. So I don't really count last year that as a full year. Because I only worked on it from, like I say, May or June until September. And uh, I started back to work on the boat right before the beginning of the new year. I kind of, you know, as part of my grieving process was to get busy. And so I uh, went back outside and I said, okay, it's time to get back on with life. And so started working on it right before New Year's of last year. And then, of course, it started to snow. So we didn't do much in February and in, in, in uh, January, but I would do a little bit of work and post the videos. And uh, I then built a secondary work area. I don't know if you've seen that in the videos, but uh, I have a, a tented workshop that's now in my yard that took a few weeks to get together, built a nice workbench in there and got my workspace together. So that took a, about a month, month and a half of this year. And so we actually began working on building the frames of the boat, I would say April. So we built from April and May to June. We had all the frame, all the frames are built. And what I mean by built, I'm sorry, they're, they're cut. Uh, each frame has a different angle. You know how a boat is. A boat works in flare and shape. So all the frames were cut out uh, in April and May and June of this, this year. Then I started putting them together. Uh, well, no. Then I worked on building the keel in June and July, and then we started attaching frames in August. So maybe late August, because there was a lot going on in August. My daughter went to college, and so August really I didn't work. So September we probably start putting the frames on, and uh, I hope to get them all on before winter really sets in. And then over the winter I could just do the. Uh, the uh, the stringers because that's just basic carpentry and if it's cold I won't be able to glue them in place but I'll be able to cut them in with my router you know get everything plain and sanded like it needs to be and then in the spring just come back and glue everything together so that's what my goal would be uh, to do in the, over the winter of this year All and right. then hopefully put plywood on next spring or you know next summer. I don't know if you've read any of the Larry Party books, but he uh, he built his boat, uh, Tallison, and he says the most important thing to have in a um, in a boat boatyard is a chair to sit there and think about what you're going to do next. <laughs> right, I can see that. I can see that it's it's about being 
making use of your time. And so there are times when I don't have help and I need help. Like I want to actually attach some frames. It's beautiful, but I don't have any help. So I figured a way I can build a little stand to kind of aid me, uh, you know, to do what I want to do just to be productive. Uh, even because the goal is just to go out there, you know, every day and do something. Even if it's, I swear, I went out and I did an hour's worth of work a couple of days ago, but it was just something. It just makes you feel like that's an hour's work that's done. That's an hour in the bank, you know, that's an hour closer to the goal of, you know, cruising. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. When I was building my boat, my schedule was pretty much reversed from yours. Um, I tended to work on my boat in the winter because I was at the same time I was working on my summer home, building my summer home in the summer. So that was a, you know, and I can't get in to work on the summer home because it's up in the mountains in the winter. So I did something that for me made uh, just, just all the difference in the world. I built a steel shed around my boat. I had my, I had a a pad, I had a pad uh, poured. I formed up the pad and the foundation around the pad because I live uh, on a fairly steep lot. And p- poured the pad and then had the hull delivered because I didn't, I didn't have as much energy as you did to actually build the hull. I had the hull delivered. And then once the hull was on the pad, I built a steel shed around it. And uh, it made working in the winter so much easier for me. And then I built scaffolding around it. Of course, mine was upright and yours is upside down. But so I was able to work on mine in the winter. And I was able, you know, like you say, fiberglass or epoxy, anytime you need, I needed to glue something, I really either had to put heat in the boat at the time. And I used a lot of little electric heaters to do that. But it was always difficult to do anything be it with, uh, with, you know, polyester resin or epoxy resin or, or back then it was resourceful glue, which I think they've outlawed since then. You don't see resourceful glue anymore. But, uh, so mine was uh, the opposite. Mine and I worked on it in the winter, and I gave up skiing during that five years. I don't think I went skiing much at all during that five years, and then worked on the summer home um, in the summer, and it took me five years. And you know what? And and you're probably seeing this right now. I I felt like I accomplished so much. I felt so good when I was out there working on the boat. I mean, I just felt like there wasn't a thing in the world I would rather be doing than going out there and actually producing something with my hands. I mean, I really felt a sense of satisfaction building. And, and you obviously do, too, because that's what you do for, you know, you do that, not do for a living, but you see things being built. So, Well, let me, let me ask you this question, if I could. So <laughs> you, you had the uh, slab poured. Mm-hmm. Um, did you did you speak to someone in terms of how thick you should make that slab? You know, I I, I grew up with guys in the construction industry, and no, I pretty much designed it and poured it myself. I think I put a six inch slab and put a bunch of I put a bunch of rebar in there, but no, it was pretty much uh, <laughs> cobbled together. Just poured a slab okay. and cobbled it together. Okay, um, and so once you had your slab. Um, your boat was your boat is what size? Thirty two feet. It's uh, twenty eight feet on deck, and thirty seven feet with the bowsprit and boomkin on it. So then, how did you decide how much space you would have around your boat? The reason I'm asking, uh, what I like to do on my YouTube channel is to encourage regular regular people without a lot of skills or who may not be you know like I am a professional builder to some degree. I want to encourage them to do what you did to do what I'm doing. And so I, I, I kind of like to show how the layman or, you know, I, and I'm not sure what your profession is, but how an average person just attempts this project. So working, th- like I've been through that process. So I'm, you know, going backwards and asking you about your process. So when you decided how much, how when you went through, how did you decide how much room you would have around your boat to work? Well, what I did is uh, I was really limited by my lot size. Uh, I didn't have a lot of room to work, and and I couldn't have built a boat as big as yours in my backyard because I just could not get that length in there Uh, because I had to think about how to get the boat out of the shed once it was done. I wasn't going to tear down the shed because that shed's now filled up with junk that we all accumulate in life. (laughs) And and, uh, 
So I had to figure out how much I could put in there. I really could not have built a bigger boat than I have. So what I, what my, the length of my, uh, the length of the uh, shed is I think 30, 32 feet. So I've really only got about two feet on each side of the boat. And then it was about uh, 20 feet wide, 20 feet wide, so I could build a scaffolding around the side of it and put it up. And I did get a building permit for it. I couldn't get it now where I live, but at the time I was able to get a building permit and put it up, much to the chagrin of my current neighbors who wish I'd tear the shed down because it's so tall, because I had to have it tall enough so I could actually get the boat in there and and stand up and move around in there. But... uh, but I was able to, to do it, do a building permit, and uh, but it, there's not much extra space in there. Let me tell you, I did have a, a workshop that was in my garage. So my regular garage was filled up with tools where I did a lot of the the cutting and fabricating, and then I'd take it back out to the, the boathouse and put it on the boat, and I would go back and forth all day long because I'd need to cut a little more here, a little more there, just back and forth and back and forth. Because there's really no room to put it on the boat. And, you know, you use the bandsaw more than anything else when you're building a boat. So the bandsaw wouldn't fit in my shed. So anyway, that's how I did it. Um, and, and for me, that made, the, made it so I could work on it in the winter. I didn't have to get up there and shovel off snow if it snowed. And, and our, our winters here can be fairly cold for long periods of time. Uh, but, I, you know, I just totally enjoyed the boat building process. This is when my kids were really young. And, and I couldn't have afforded to even keep the boat in the water um, while I was building the boat. But things came around as, as, uh, as the boat was built, my income went up, and, and then when we launched it, it was about the right time to do it. So for me, everything worked out, you know, in time. And the actual building process was so rewarding to me that I, you know, I, I sort of feel sorry for people that haven't had that that creative experience of actually building something that you use so then once you once you've got this beautiful now hull sitting there <laughs> what was the first thing you began to work on oh you know what once, once you got I, the shelter built when i got this hull there i just looked at it and i just felt, felt so overwhelmed i just thought oh geez here's a, a big bathtub right here's a big right. bathtub well, now what do I do? And you know, all you can do is just concentrate on one thing at a time. Just one. Don't 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 try to envision all that you have to do. You just have to envision one thing at a time. Now, one one thing I did do, and I was going to ask you about this. Before I had the had the hull delivered, I'd already cast my uh, pigs for my keel, and I have an internal uh, lead keel. So the so I I had the crane. Uh, lift up my my lead pigs and put them into the keel and uh, so so that eliminated any more need for the crane at that point in time how are you going to do your keel what are you are you going to cast your keel yourself no the keel is an, it's an internal keel just like i assume you have um, but since i cannot attach the keel here all that has to be done once i get into the boat yard like i said the keel is framed if you look in the videos if you go back uh, probably to mid-July, you'll see a video of us moving the keel. And my, my, I had to frame it here because I wanted it to actually fit. You know, I wanted it to just be able to slide right on when it's time to attach it. So I designed it so it can be, it was built in place, screwed in place. Um, then I took it apart and took the keel off. And so my plan is once I get it to a boat yard to put the keel in place, attach it to the boat, and then to put lead in it or steel. Now, I keep going back and forth because um, the more I get into this building process, the more I realize that my design is way (laughs) overbuilt. I mean, I've got very conventional framing in the design of this boat, and I'm starting to see that it doesn't have to be so overbuilt. So maybe I reduced the amount of conventional framing and just add ballast, which would should give me a better, you know, riding moment and all that good stuff we want. The reason why we want ballast so low. So I don't have to do lead ballast. If I do steel, it's enough. 
I need about 10,000 pounds. But um, I think I may add a little bit of uh, lead to that. And either way, it'll be encapsulated in the keel. And my plan was to simply mortar the, uh, the material in place. If I was to get lead, it depends on what form the lead came in. If it was already in pigs or bars, I could take those bars and hopefully uh, just mortar them into the boat. Put, take some conventional mason mortar, lay a bed, put the block in, <laughs> lay some more mortar down, and just mortar them in place in the keel before I attached the plywood to the side of the framing. And so uh, that's what my plan was. It would either be lead or steel rebar. Steel rebar will give me enough ballast in that keel uh, to meet my design criteria, but uh, if I reduce some of the fr from the some of the structure, I may do a little bit of lead in that kill also. So that's the goal. That that's the the method. Simply um, mortar in or grout in, as you, if you want, if you will, uh, the the lead or steel ballast. Okay. So a, a hint you might want to start thinking about is, and I and I did this for like five years before I even got my haul was. Uh, I'd go around to tire shops and buy their wheel weights, and I did. I had uh, I had five thousand pounds of lead sitting in my backyard when I poured my pigs for lead. So you might want to, if you're planning ahead and you have the time, start collecting wheel weights from uh, tire shops. I'd go in and and I would pay them for what their scrap price was, and uh, collect lead that way. Just a thought. No, I, I've already I've already I've already reached out. I've already started talking to actually uh, gun ranges because gun ranges are a good source of 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 lead as well. And so I had a had I haven't actually have had an arrangement, but um, I didn't because you ha he wanted me to take all of what he had, <laughs> and I and I couldn't manage all of what he had at this point in time. I would have had to rent a huge truck and got some guys. And I just wasn't situated to do it. This was earlier this year, but yeah, I've already started thinking about that even. One of my thoughts is even to you can get plenty of wrecked boats, you know, that have lead in them, and I'll take the boat right to the dump, and <laughs> strip the strip the lead out of it, and just leave the boat there if I if, if I find something that comes up in the right right uh, vein of what I need. But yeah, we're there. We've all you and I think on the same level. I, I missed an opportunity this year by not being able to get the lead I could have gotten. But I, I'll I'll be ready. Yeah, what I found was I'd just stop at a shop. I wouldn't come to any sort of arrangement. I'd walk in. I'd say, oh, and then you have a five-gallon bucket of wheel weights that have that'd been accumulating over a while. And, and I'd just say, let me buy it from you. they say, okay, and then would weigh it, and I'd pay him, and I'd be out of there. And, and the, the nice thing about lead weights, I guess, versus going in and getting a boat that has a cast keel is a five-gallon bucket of lead weights you can barely handle. But uh, yeah. a, a big keel is yeah, it's, that's going to be awfully. You're going to have to have some heavy equipment to move that thing around. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You want to cut it with a chainsaw in <laughs> small pieces. Yeah, that's about what you have to do. Uh, anyway, so come out. Um, you're are you got, what what are your plans as far as doing it yourself? You're going to build the entire interior. Sort of, what are your steps you're going to be moving forward with? I mean, I know the hull's the first priority, and then you have to move to a boat yard. <clears throat> How far is the boat yard going to be away from your home? Uh, the boat yard's about six miles away. Okay. Um, there are plenty of boat yards that are builder friendly uh, here in this area. Um, you know, Baltimore has, you know, the, the working man's Riviera. Um, you know, the Chesapeake's a great place for. Um, regular Joe Schmo to have have a boat. I mean, I, I, for what I've spent on this boat, I could probably have three boats already. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a marina not too far away. I need to retrace the route to make sure that I can get my boat in there because, you know, again, I've got a 16-foot beam, and even though that is the maximum that I can have on the road, um, without a special permit, I need to make sure that in that neighborhood where this boat's going, it's it's got to go through some residential area first. So I need to go back through there to make sure everything's all right. I, I went through there a couple of years ago, but I haven't been back since. Um, and you never know what's going to happen, you know. <laughs> uh, 
uh, somebody could build something and it become a problem. But I'm pretty confident that somewhere around here where I'll be able to build this boat. Um, and hopefully the way it'll execute, I'll be able to just get into a marina and complete it over the summer and then splash it once I go. I don't plan to be on the hard in somebody's marina for another year. Okay. Um, it, it should just be you know, a couple of months to get the keel on, get it attached, glass the bottom of the boat, and splash it. That's my plan. Now you're going to build the cabin top and have that prefabricated and put it on at the boatyard? Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, I'll probably already have that prefabricated before I leave. It just won't be attached, just like I'm doing the keel. Okay. The only other thing I think about is, or what I'm currently thinking about is the mast. Initially, I was going to do a wooden mast, um, and I'm, I'm just in love with Doug Fur, and the price is right in this area. But I've been thinking about the weight lately, of what a wooden spar would weigh. And so I estimated yesterday it would be about 500 pounds, which is probably, it's a 52-foot spar is what my mass needs to be. And that's probably a good 150 pounds heavier than an aluminum spar would be. But it would also be $7,000 cheaper <laughs> to build it myself. But that's where I'm going back and forth now in terms of... Well, you know, you, you, you can always consider Sitka spruce if you can find a source of Sitka spruce, which is going to be a lot lighter than Douglas fir. Yeah. yeah. That's what I did. I initially planned on building my wooden mast. <clears throat> and... Uh, and a friend of mine, Marsh Party, is a brother of Larry Party, and Larry Party is a big lover of his own wooden mass. But Marsh Party said, I don't care what you do, you'd never want to put up a wooden mass because the maintenance is an absolute nightmare. And and I got to thinking of it, and, I, and I'd actually already bought the Sitka Spruce to build my mast. And I came around to his way of thinking, and so I put on an aluminum mass, which was which is painted in a color called butterscotch. So from a distance, it looks like a wooden mast, but it's not. It's an aluminum mast. And I don't know, Kamal, I don't think you're going to want to climb up to the top of that mast two times a year, sanding and varnishing that down. That's, that's what I look at. I look at these beautiful boats with these beautiful wooden masts, and the maintenance on these masts is, is pretty, pretty strong pretty severe you got to really stay on top of it and if you don't your boat's in danger you know so well well actually my plan is not to have a finished a um a varnished spa <laughs> uh believe me it will be painted and if you if if you look i have a a picture online i don't know if you've seen it or not but only the bottom of the mast is going to be bright from the boom on down the rest of it will be painted because, yeah, I had no intentions of climbing up a mast ever <laughs> to do anything. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm north of 350, so that's not going to happen. But actually, uh, I do have designed in my boat a uh, tabernacle uh, in case we ever need to do any work on the rigging. So that's one of the reasons why I want to use the wooden spar, because it's easier to do the tabernacle design I have with a wooden spar than with an aluminum one because that'll have to be engineered and that's just more opportunity for a spar manufacturer to rape me <laughs> for what's otherwise a street pole, a light pole. Um, yeah, so I'm still up in the air about that. It's only 52 feet and I'm thinking maybe I add a little bit more lead to counteract the weight of the of the wood, or I go with a different species of wood, but you know, we'll see. I mean, 500 pounds is not too heavy. I mean, there are traditional boats that have a lot heavier spars out there, and 52 feet is not that high, so yeah, you know, it's, it's all a consideration. Yep, it is. So, let, let me ask you this question So, what was that first thing that you did, uh, if you can recall? Well, you you yeah, I, re I remember exactly what I did. First thing is, I put in the uh, the lead keel or the lead ballast. And then with the lead ballast, I, I it's, it's an encapsulated lead ballast. So I put uh, poly, I put basically the lead pigs in, and then I put a bunch of a mixture of uh, lead buckshot and or lead BBs and polyester resin around it, 
and then I put about five layers of fiberglass over the top of it. So if I ever turn turtle, that 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 lead's not going to come flying through the top the, the the bottom of the boat and kill me. And then the next step was uh, putting in the bulkheads, uh, and then uh, and then the uh, this is a fiberglass boat, so it's a little different than yours. But putting the bulkheads. And then putting in basically the the structural members, uh, a lot of little bits of fiberglass, and then the sole of the boat, and uh, and then I put in the the engine tray. Now I'm, I had a big advantage over you. I had Sam Moore's company in Costa Mesa, California, that was building these boats uh, commercially, and any time I had a problem or a question, I could go down and talk to the uh, shipwrights down in Costa Mesa and say, how do I do this? How do I do this? And and Sam was just a perfect gentleman. He let me pick his brains and pick the brains of his workers because he wanted to make sure I did a good job on my boat. And I, I learned as I went along. I'd start out with big pieces of teak, and eventually I'd make enough mistakes or little pieces of teak left over. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you learn as you go along. You're going to make mistakes and... You make a lot of mistakes, and eventually your skills improve as you do this. So it was uh, you know, bulkhead, sole, you know, basically the rough plywood interior that I had to put in. That was the first step. And then after that, then you start with the uh, running. Uh, I ran a lot of wires before I started doing much more than that, the electrical system. And then uh, then the finish carpentry, and eh, just step by step by step. And I remember one day I had a piece of wood that was about four inches wide which was basically my wiring tray that's right up above the uh, right up by the shear of the boat and this piece had a compound curve on it turned up this way and turned in this way and turned in this it took me a full day to fit that piece up and down up and down up and down and I'm thinking you know every time I look at that board I realize how long that took to to put in there that little that little piece of wood but you know, that's that that was a finish work on the boat, so I wanted to make sure it looked good. <clears throat> but uh, so it was step by step by step. I mean, it, it was a five year process, but again, I only worked really on it in the winter. So I guess you'd say maybe a two two and a half year process, and uh, yeah, everything worked out fine. It, it's a real fulfilling, rewarding experience, I think, to build a boat. Do Do you have saltwater heads? I do, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you could do that or build your next boat, would you do saltwater or freshwater heads? Oh, I haven't had any trouble with my saltwater head. I mean, it stinks a little bit, but every head's going to stink a little bit. So, um, no, I, I have not had any problem with my head. I've had to rebuild it a couple times, but I only have one head, and I don't have a shower. My boat's a lot smaller than yours is. No, it's been fine. It's a simple boat. The thing I like about mine is it's relatively simple, so I can fix pretty much anything on the boat, too. Right. Yeah. The, the thing I've been thinking about <clears throat> is the uh, is using a freshwater head system instead of a saltwater. And from from what I'm learning or what I've heard or, you know, talking to other boat owners is that the crystallization in the uh, saltwater head is really what causes the odor. And so, uh, you know, that odor you just can't get rid of without replacing the hoses. So uh, I've been reading and listening to uh, people that say that the freshwater heads, you don't get that crystallization, and your plumbing stays a lot more, a lot cleaner. And so I've been thinking about that, and that, of course, gets into how much fresh water I'll be able to carry or, uh, you know, in a perfect world, I'll be able to uh, equip the boat with a, a water maker at some point. But again, that's down the line after I've you know, done my sea trials and tested the boat out for a couple of years. But that's kind of where I am because I will have two heads and I would like to have a wife again <laughs> by the time I go cruising. And uh, I think having a less smelly boat would be an attractive thing <laughs> <laughs> and a shower makes a difference and also an, uh, an outlet to plug in our hair dryer that's always a big deal too. <laughs> yeah 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 a lot of those creature comforts are things that from my perspective um i think people look at them as luxuries <laughs> but 
I look at my boating life. I didn't. I didn't get into this as a twenty-something-year-old. I'm, I'm forty-six. By the time I'm done, I'll be fifty. And I, like I said, I want to live aboard. That's part of my financial plan to cruise. I have to live aboard for a couple of years and save, you know, mortgage income uh, to go cruising. I mean, I could rent my house and probably, even after paying the mortgage, make a thousand dollars a month because I have a uh, I have really saved 50 grand without blinking an eye just by living on my boat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so that's that's easy. Yeah. So uh, to do that, I, I want to make sure I have a boat that, and I, I'm, I would like to be married again. I've, I've been divorced for a few years now, and the boat had nothing to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> it had nothing to do with it. Uh, we, we got separated. Before I was actually into voting. All right. Hey, but, uh, Kamal, we've gone on about an hour now, and I like to leave my podcast not much more than an hour. Do you have any other quick questions, or we can come back and continue an interview uh, some other time? What do you think? Well, actually, I've been editing my, my uh, video as we go along. So you can go ahead and finish up whatever your, your questions were, but I still have questions for you because I'm only at 26 minutes for – what I've uh, been recording. All right. So well, I want, what I want you to do is you I have want, other things. Uh, what I want you to do is tell my audience about, um, about your website and your project and how they can get a hold of you. Okay. Well, I, I, I don't have a website. I just have the YouTube channel and it's I and I boats, I A N D I boats at uh, YouTube or backslash youtube.com. And again, it's I'm, I'm documenting every step of the way. Uh, I show most of my, most of my problems, even the embarrassing ones, because I really believe that voting does not have to be for the ultra rich. It does not have to be for those people who have you know a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars laying around. It could be for the enterprising American or whomever, wherever you are in the world. Uh, that have some skills, that have a dream, and then have a little bit of what we call stick to itiveness to to be out there and enjoying this this art, this sport, this beautiful thing we call sailing or, or boating. Even if you build a motorboat, it, it it really doesn't matter. Just don't let money be a reason not to explore something that's possible. I, I tell my friends all the time, uh, you know, this guy Christopher. Columbus got lost <laughs> and, you know, made it here in a boat that none of us would even think about sailing on with technology that's, you know, six, seven hundred years old. The technology of boating is so advanced. It's really simple. It's basically you take a plastic bottle and you put a sheet on it <laughs> and a weight at the bottom and you can explore the world. So, you know, if you have the dream, just do it. And so my my YouTube channel is a resource for those who may not have a, an, a, a, an aggressive dream as I have to do a 54-foot boat, but who may just want to do day sailing, who may just want to do some cruising, you know, something something simple. But uh, I hope to show and share uh, my journey with all who would watch and hopefully encourage somebody out there to, uh, you know, get, get moving. Just like uh, your podcast, I love it. I love the interview you just had with the composites. I learned so much. I was so happy with the decisions I've made based on that last interview you had, Franz. I'm telling you. Which one was description, that? The description of uh, what a composite material ah, is. Lewis. The difference okay. in, in, yes, the difference in epoxy versus uh, you know, those other types of epoxies. I'm just so happy with what I'm doing because it just reinforced what I've learned and what my belief system is in terms of, of, of what your guy presented. So I love this community that shares all that kind of information. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a college education worth out there if you just know where to look at. So I commend you and thank you for, you know, sharing your experience and your resources with us. Cause that was an immeasurable thing. Uh, that your guy talked about. So now I know I'm going to add Kevlar instead of <laughs> carbon fiber 
to the front of my boat because Kevlar will flex. You know, I was <laughs> I never really figured that stuff out. Like, which one should I add to beef up the the bow of my boat? So now I know it's Kevlar. Thanks to you, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kamau. All right, I'm going to close out this interview. And uh, I'll stick on, and we can talk. Conti- we can continue to talk, but I gotta do my exit audio. Hold on a second here. Joe, you have something to tell me? No, I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joe. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joel. His exact words. That's unbelievable. You're as good as in. I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you every once in a while, you just got to say, what the heck, and take some chances. You are so right. You made me very proud. I was just thinking where we might be 10 years from now, you know?